Verse 1, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord. Of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both slave, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast. And the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Well, let us pray that God will bless the reading of his word to our souls. O Lord, we ask that we would believe these words and not believe them because we are told to, though you do tell us to, but to believe them because these words do not merely enter our ears, but our hearts, our souls, and they make us alive, as it were, to the deep things of God which have been expressed to us on these pages. Please bless us now as we consider them 
for the sake of your glorious name. Amen. Uh, Tertullian was an early church father, and he said roughly in the third century that uh, Christians uh, mock us for believing in the final judgment of Christ. I mean, the world mocks Christians for believing in the final judgment of uh, the world, and uh, this has always been the case. If you were to say to people in the world, one day Christ, Jesus, is going to come and judge the world, uh, you will be laughed at, maybe not outwardly, but certainly inwardly. Uh, It so happened that during the time of Martin Lloyd-Jones' ministry in London, there was a famous uh, New Testament scholar, uh, J.V.G. Tasker. And uh, when you're a professor of theology in a university in the United Kingdom, you are the professor. There is no other professors. Uh, It's not like America, where everybody is a professor. You have assistant, associate, sub-associate, sub-assistant, lecturer to be assistant to the associate professor. In England, you are the professor. It is a great honor to be a professor. And he was a liberal uh, New Testament theologian. He had doubts about things like the second coming. But Martin Lloyd-Jones had been asked to preach, and he thought he would go and listen to see uh, what this man was all about, whose ministry was so powerful in London. And Uh, Three years later, uh, Professor Tasker was the chairman of the London Christian Union at the same University of London, and he introduced Martin Lloyd-Jones to speak that night. And in his introduction, he actually said, I don't know who else heard Dr. Lloyd-Jones speaking in this hall three years ago on the second coming of Jesus Christ, but I know one man whose life was revolutionized by that address. That man is your chairman tonight. The point is, this New Testament scholar who knew the New Testament inside and out didn't know the Lord. And it was the preaching, the powerful preaching of the judgment of Christ that turned his life around. And actually, he was scorned and ridiculed by many of his fellow peers in academia for the decision to serve the Lord and to believe the word of the Lord. Now, I say this to uh, convince you in part that uh, we are here to save souls, and I say that with a straight face as a Presbyterian. Um, I know that phrase may have been co-opted by others, but we are here to save souls, and by saving souls, I am not, hear me clearly, I am not simply talking about conversion. I am talking about saving souls to the end. Not just conversion, though of course we want to see souls saved. I want to see souls saved to the end. And there is a very powerful place for evangelistic ministry in the world. And that is why we send out missionaries. That is why we believe in evangelism. We want people to come to know the Lord. But that is when the work truly begins in a sense. Now, you will see here that in John, or Revelation chapter 19, John is speaking and he uh, talks about uh, how he hears this loud voice of a great multitude. They are crying out, and they are crying out 
what appears to be a type of song. Now, I want you to understand something very carefully now about the nature of music in the Psalms and in the book of Revelation as two examples. The first is this. When there is a declaration of who God is, that He's great or He's glorious or He's mighty, the Bible doesn't leave you to fill in the blanks as to why that is the case. So it is not enough in praying or in preaching or in singing to simply say, oh God, you are just so good. Amen. I think I'll go and have a uh, cigarette now and get on with the day. Your duty as a Christian is to praise God for being great, for being mighty, for being holy, for being good, for being who He is, but to also give reasons for why He is those things. So that's what John does. I quite like the hymn we sung, Agnes Day. It probably doesn't, it could use a few extra lines. I'd like to see Michael W. Smith at one of these big conferences with 20,000 people where all of a sudden this new stanza breaks out and the wicked will have their flesh eaten by the birds and they will go into the lake of burning sulfur. You know, it'd be kind of cool to just people, wait a minute. Because actually, that song gets its words from Revelation 19. And if you look at the context and what goes on, it would be a rather fitting stanza to throw in. I leave that to the musicians here to figure out a way to do that. But you see, this is exactly what John does. He says, hallelujah, praise the Lord. It's a command. We have the Hallel Psalms in 113 to 118. They are commands to praise God. And here you have a fourfold use of hallelujah in verses 1, 3, 4, and 6 of commanding people to praise God. And, for example, his judgments in verse 2 are true and they are just. Or, in verse 3, we are to praise God because the smoke from her, this is the wicked, goes up forever and ever. In fact, the 24 elders, representative, I believe, of the people of God, the four living creatures, perhaps angels, they also fall down and worship God who was seated on the throne. And guess what they say? They say, yes, let it be so. Amen. We believe this to be true. And then they sing, hallelujah. Let it be true what has just been said. Praise the Lord. And then there is another command. Praise our God, all you His servants who fear Him, small and great. Everyone is summoned to praise God in the way that He is being praised here. And you will find that there is then a threefold simile. It doesn't look, it looks like two, but in the Greek it's actually three because he hears what seemed to be like the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. And then he tells us what the praise is about. It is about a wedding, and we are getting what is a hint of something that will be established later on in the book of Revelation, which we will turn our attention to in subsequent weeks. We know a little bit about the wedding, but we don't know everything. There's a bit of mystery still, and that's a little bit exciting. Actually, this week, uh, I received a text from someone inviting me to their wedding. It was just a, an invite as a text. You know, why print off paper, why send it in a, an envelope? 
Uh, you can text wedding invitations. And this gentleman actually was someone that I had befriended because he fixes bikes and sells mountain bikes. We got into downhill biking, our family, during uh, COVID, and uh, it became a, a passion of our family to go and put our lives at risk on Whistler every summer, to which we hope to return this summer, Lord willing. And there was this guy, he, he, he was able to build bikes for us and repair bikes. And we just kept going back to him because he was so good and so cheap. And I built a friendship with him. And then I saw a young lady there, not young lady, I mean, she was in her 20s. I don't know if that, what the young guy is anymore, but she was there. And I just said to him, you know what, if you ever get married to her, because I wanted him to get married. I said, if you ever get married to her, the wedding is on me. And now that doesn't apply to you guys. <laughs> it applies to people who actually fix my bikes. And then I get a text this week. I'm invited to this wedding. Now, there's two aspects to this wedding, and I'm not going to be able to go to the first, but I'd like to go to the first. But the first aspect is the South Indian aspect, where it's very traditional. And he says, listen, you can come to this if you want, but you know, you're actually got the invite to the latter section of the way. Probably the white person wedding is, he's, you know, all oh, his buddies are coming. So I'm kind of excited about this. I have no idea what to expect. I don't even know if I should be wearing a suit to this sucker. Do I need to get into some garb? What do I do? So I did what any intelligent human being would do. I looked up where this wedding was going to be and went on Google and found out about this palace and where it's going to be and looked at the food and thought, yes, I am in for a rocking good time. All because I told him I would marry him, him and his girlfriend. And that's exciting to me. Uh, it should be exciting to you to go to weddings and one of the great anticipations of the book of Revelation is preparing God's people to go to a wedding, a marriage feast of the Lamb. But something has to happen before that takes place. You see this in verses 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. Why should we be excited about this? Because the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready that is speaking about the people of God. And how do the people of God make herself ready for this wedding? The answer is given to you in verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, this is a verse that can probably get you into all sorts of trouble. But let me give you the clearest explanation of what I think is being said here. And if you want the didactic sort of, uh, this is how a theologian says it, you just go to Ephesians chapter 2, because we're told that God prepares these good works in advance for us to do. So the very good works that we do are nevertheless gifts that God has enabled us to do by His power and His Spirit. But that doesn't take away from the absolute necessity of the people of God living a life of obedience towards God in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. You can't just say, well, you know, what we need to focus in on is the fact that God clothes us. Yes, He does. In fact, He imputes Christ's righteousness to us. That's one way He clothes us. But another way He clothes us is by actually making us holy. And the emphasis is upon that there. It actually tells you, for the fine linen is what? Not the righteousness of Christ, though that is true, but it's the righteous deeds of the saints. The beauty 
of the bride are the righteous deeds of the bride. And the bride will be beautiful. One of the nice things about weddings, in my experience, is that I've never seen an ugly bride. They always are beautiful. And one of the reasons they're so beautiful is the amount of preparation that goes into making them look beautiful. This is no sort of half an hour affair from what I understand. This can take months, (laughs) days, hours. And they prepare themselves. And they are always beautiful. It's amazing what happens to a bride on her wedding day. Her beauty goes up tenfold. And they prepare. Mind you, my wife, we had a soccer game and my brother kicked her and she got injured and stormed off and it was quite funny. Um, But that's our preparation. You know, good match, get out the nerves, uh, get married and happily ever after. But the bride of Christ actually has a duty to get ready. And the way in which we get ready is by faithful adherence to God in the midst of persecution and suffering and righteous deeds. Now, there's a benediction that is offered in light of that in verses 9 and 10. The angel says, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the words of God. Now, something interesting happens because there's, this is the fourth of the seven benedictions in the book of Revelation. But then John, remember, this is John. He is writing the book of Revelation. He has visions of what is going to happen, what has happened. He's written the book of John. He is a disciple that Jesus loved and loves. And I think, if I'm trying to get him off the hook here in this rebuke, just hear me out, please. No rushing the pulpit because of heresy yet. He is so enraptured by this idea of this marriage supper of the Lamb and what is going on, he goes out of his mind and falls down and worships this angel. Why would John do this? He knows better. He's actually seen Christ on the throne. He knows all of his theology. What makes him to do this? He just goes crazy. It's like Peter when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He went crazy. He's like, oh, well, let's build some tents and stuff. He was out of his mind. And there's almost a sense in which it would be nice if some of you were a bit out of your mind at times because of how excited you are about heaven instead of a calm collected, stiff, British upper lip, well, it will be jolly nice when we get there. So he's rebuked. You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. So a little bit of sympathy for John, even though he's wrong. Now, notice something else. This wedding is going to be a feast. And weddings and feasts should go together. One of the things about weddings that stresses me out, I'll be perfectly honest, you know, I got four kids, there's a chance one of them's going to get married. Okay? It's the fact that these are expensive weddings, aren't they? And usually what you do is then you go and you figure out, okay, well, marrying a Baptist, that saves a bit of money on the amount of wine we'll get, but still get some. 
And you go to the liquor store, and this is what's happened even in this church. I've had people phone me, hey, Pastor Mark, I know you like red wine. What would you suggest? I'm like, well, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley would be nice, but they put too many chemicals in to make it even nicer. So stay away from those. And then you start talking about it. And the next minute, hang on now, Pastor Mark. i got a budget. What are we looking at? Well, I was thinking $15 a bottle. I said, well, we might as well go non-alcoholic then. But it stresses you out a little bit, doesn't it, when you think about like how much a wedding will cost. Maybe you're a parent here and you're actually stressing now, thinking about the fact that you still have a wedding to pay for or two. And one of the great things about this marriage supper of the Lamb is that there will be no limitations upon this. When you look at Isaiah chapter 25, on the mountain of the Lord of hosts, he will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine. There will be no limitations upon what God is going to give us. Everyone will participate in this feast. And it will be glorious. Now as you see, uh, John falls down to worship after he hears this. And then a white horse emerges. And we return to a theme we've been considering in the last several weeks. Heaven opens and behold a white horse The rider is obviously victorious because white is the color of victory. You see this in chapter 2, verse 17. But a white horse symbolizes a triumphant military defeat. In fact, historically, a white stone was given to victors at games. So you go to a game and you win, you get a white stone. Or sometimes it was used for a jury. So when someone was going to be acquitted and have the victory, they would use a white stone to say that they were giving this person the victory. It is the color of victory, also of purity, but mainly of victory. And this rider comes sitting called faithful and true. We know this to be Jesus Christ. And in righteousness, what does he do? He judges and makes war. He judges and he makes war. In fact, look at what he is clothed in. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He is clothed in a robe dipped not in his own blood that he shed on the cross, but in the blood of his enemies. If you look at Isaiah chapter 63, 1 to 6, and you look at the context here, it's clearly the blood of his enemies. And he is coming to avenge the righteous and destroy the wicked. And if you have any awareness of what really goes on in parts of this world, you should be saying amen to what you are reading here. Do you know what's perverse about our world is that we do like to judge, but we don't judge really the right things, and we get upset about things that really aren't that significant. I can give you an illustration. I thought, you know, what's happening in Nigeria this month? As an example, what are Boko Haram doing to Christians? And 160 Christians just in April were abducted. Nobody knows where they've gone. They've just gone. 160 Christians... More people than in this room are gone, missing. They're just gone. How many of us knew about that? How many of us cared about that? How many of us prayed about that? Now, I'm not saying you have to know and care and pray about them. That's not my point. My point is something else. How many of you are aware that at the Oscars, that place of decorum and of righteousness and all good things, how many are aware that a comedian got slapped by Will Smith? This is the great 
thing of our age. Someone got slapped for telling a joke and the the social media frenzy and what's going on in the world. This is the big news. A guy who's going to make many more millions of dollars got slapped. But nobody cares about the 160. Nobody cares that God's people are being persecuted all over the world. But Christ does and Christ will avenge. He will avenge on his horse of victory which is a horse with a rider and a robe dipped in blood. Now it starts to get even more uh, graphic because this king of kings and lord of lords is described in the battle of verses 17 to 21. He sees an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead. Now this is one of the most shocking passages in all of God's Word. I'm not trying to overstate the matter. I really don't think so. Come, gather for the great supper of God. So there's a supper with a wedding feast and a supper of the Lamb, one that God's people will be invited to. But look at this supper. It is to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, the flesh of all men, both free and slaves, small and great. In other words, there's going to be a judgment and the language used to describe the horror of this judgment is the horror of one's flesh being eaten. In the previous chapter, those who make music make music no more. Those who build crafts build crafts no more. All of the worldly enterprises and endeavors that the world gets up to will be no more. But here in this chapter, they themselves will be no more in a sense. They will be eaten. And the beast is captured with the false prophet. Those who had deceived the world and received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. And they were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from who? From the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Jesus Christ riding victoriously as a divine warrior on the white horse is the one who will slain the wicked. So whatever your views of Jesus are, as the one who brought salvation, as the one who is meek and mild, the one who is gentle and lowly, the one who is all of these things, he must also be the Jesus that rides on this horse. Now, I just want to make one point of application, just one. And it's really what I think the issue is, how do we all get to this marriage supper of the Lamb rather than being the supper of birds? There was a soccer game this week. It's called the Champions League, uh, if you uh, don't know. It's not a big deal. You'll understand. And I want you to understand the symbolism behind what I'm saying here for the next few minutes. Uh, The Champions League is the second biggest tournament in the world. There's the World Cup, but then there's a Champions League. And the Champions League are the the best teams. And it was the semifinals between Real Madrid and Manchester City in Madrid. Now, there's two legs. The first leg was in Manchester. Manchester won 4-3. So they take a one-goal lead to Madrid, where they play in the Santiago Bernabeu in Madrid. And it has roughly sixty to 70,000 supporters in there, mainly Madristas and 
They support their team. Now, uh, it, soccer games go 90 minutes. And Madrid hadn't really had a shot on net all game. And then Manchester City scored late in the game. So they're up two goals. So Madrid have to score three goals to win, two goals to send it to extra time. So in around the 88th minute, there are fans of Madrid who say, well, there's no chance. We may as well go home. They leave the stadium. As they're leaving the stadium and they're now on the outside, though they had tickets and though they were part of the fans that were cheering their team on, they were now outside. And lo and behold, in the 89th minute, Madrid score a goal, which makes it 1-1, but on aggregate 2-1 for Man City. Madrid have a few minutes left to score another goal. Highly unlikely, but possible. They score another goal. They are able to take it to extra time, but there are people now on the outside of the stadium. You can imagine what they were thinking when all of a sudden the stadium that's been relatively quiet all game is now erupting with praise and shouting. And if you watch the video, it's a haunting, haunting video of something that will be far more haunting one day. Just some of the words you hear from the fans now on the outside. Come on, let us in. You can't do this. Shame on you. I come once a year. The ticket was 250 euros. Another one. I just left and there's been two goals. He's walking around. I've just left and there's two goals. Another, we're not English fans, we're Madrid fans. Have some respect, please. Open the door. Will you open the door? And on the inside, what you hear are the Madrid fans who stayed singing, yes, we can, yes, we can. They're on the outside, and there are guards on the outside who are actually smiling at these people who are sitting there perplexed that they can't get back in, that they were in and they left, and now they're missing out, and they're walking around pulling their hair out. They're begging to be allowed in, but they will not be allowed in. They had no faith that their team would be victorious. And they left. And they were not allowed back in. And there are Christians who may even doubt that their team will be victorious. They may even doubt the truth of what God is saying here. They may doubt whether the gospel is true. And they leave the church. They give up. They leave the stadium. They go outside. And then one day they're going to be saying, will you open the door? Will you open the door? Have some respect, please. You can't do this. And the door will be closed. And they will not be allowed back in. And they will hear the shouting and the celebration and the glory of what is happening inside the temple of God with all of God's faithful declaring victory and praise and honor towards God and towards Christ who is the true victor. This is not just a call to believe. It is a call to be faithful to the end, to prepare yourself with righteous deeds for that final day when we shall have the victory 
and not be found on the outside because those on the outside will be eaten. Those on the outside will be judged and only those on the inside who persevered through times of difficulty will be found to be celebrating at the wedding supper of the Lamb forever and ever and ever. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that we will remain faithful to the end. Many begin the race. Many love the harlot in that race and they wander off. Many are deceived thinking this is not true, that you will not mind, that you will not care that we have been unfaithful. And so help us to be freshly warned, but also encouraged to remain faithful and to know that our rider goes before us and we will ride with him in victory and celebration, but also in great feasting at the wedding supper of the Lamb. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.